Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Good day! Welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams. And today, we're going to carry on in our segment of Settling the Solar System. In previous episodes, we looked at how human beings could establish a permanent settlement on the Moon and on Mars. Well, today, we're going to take a look at how humanity could establish a presence on Earth's nearest terrestrial neighbor, the planet Venus. In Western astronomical traditions, Venus takes its name from the god of beauty and fertility, and this is something that was passed down from the Babylonians and Mesopotamians, to whom Venus was known as Inanna and Ishtar. The same is true of ancient Hindu astronomers, who saw her as the goddess of fertility, the embodiment of beauty and enthusiasm, and whose name Shukra means clean, pure, bright, clearly referring to Venus's appearance in the night sky. In Chinese astrology, Venus was associated with the element metal, similar to how Mars was associated with fire. In this case, this represented the qualities of being unyielding, strong, and persistent. To Mesoamericans, on the other hand, especially the Mayans, Venus was associated with war. It was Venus who was the god of war, and the Mayans planned their battles and their sacrifices around Venus's presence in the night sky. When it was ascendant, this was seen as the best time to conduct the sacrifices and march off to war. But thanks to modern astronomy and space exploration, we've learned exactly how wrong these impressions were. Venus may loom large and shine very brightly in the night sky, And if you're looking up at the night sky lately, you'll see Venus shining very brightly and beautifully, and you can understand why ancient astronomers felt that the planet embodied beauty or strength. In reality, Venus is as close to hell as we could possibly imagine a terrestrial environment to be. Its atmosphere is almost a hundred times as dense as Earth's. It is the hottest planet in the solar system, even hotter than Mercury. And so much of this has to do with the fact that it has a very slow rotation on its axis. It also rotates in the opposite direction as the other planets, known as a retrograde rotation. And astronomers are not entirely sure why, but a very educated guess is that it was struck by a large impactor in the past, and this caused its rotation to slow down considerably and reverse, Other research points to the possibility that Venus once had deep oceans on its surface and that these caused it to slow down over time and eventually reverse its rotation. And because of a massive resurfacing event that happened several hundred million years ago, Venus's atmosphere was flooded with carbon dioxide, a major greenhouse gas, and this led to a massive runaway greenhouse effect that has left the atmosphere both isothermal meaning there's very little in the way of temperature differences between day and night, or certain times of the year, 
and also hot enough, on average, to melt lead. As if that wasn't hellish enough, as if it wasn't something so completely out of Dante's Inferno, there's also the matter of the sulfuric acid rain. So, as a result of this, Venus has been very difficult to explore. So, prior to the Space Age, before we could actually send missions to Venus, astronomers believed that it was shrouded in a very dense atmosphere, which was correct, but that this atmosphere was incredibly rainy, and that the surface was likely covered in oceans and was a very tropical environment. And so, Venus inspired its own mythology about possible Venusian civilizations, or Citharians, or possible life forms that existed on its surface. So, whereas observations of Mars and its surface features and the noted similarities between Mars and Earth, while that spawned a very noticeable, very large and respectable canon in science fiction literature, the fact that Venus was shrouded really gave authors, even though the body of literature about Venus in those days was small in comparison, it gave authors free license to imagine what could be there. So, all manner of depictions were created throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, and these generally depicted civilizations living among jungles and swamps. Examples include the writings of Robert A. Heinlein, which include The Green Hills of Earth, Space Cadet, and Podcane of Mars. All of these books portrayed Venus as having swamps and explorers encountering them. Ray Bradbury, author of The Martian Chronicles, his short story The Long Rain, written in 1950, is also a good example, as was his short story All Summer in a Day in which people living on Venus, they're only able to see the sun through cloud cover once every seven years. And Olaf Stapleton, in his iconic future history book, Last and First Men, he describes a future where humans settle on Mars and terraform the planet to their needs, which resulted in the extinction of the native species, which attempt to resist human colonization, but are exterminated by them. And other depictions portrayed Venus as an ocean planet, literally covered in oceans, no real land masses to speak of, or as a desert planet with a very dense atmosphere composed of water vapor. So as I said, the fact that Venus was shrouded in such a dense atmosphere allowed science fiction authors and speculative thinkers to imagine just about anything to be there. And much like all the speculative science fiction about Mars and Martians, this would be brought to an end by the Space Age, when the first missions revealed exactly what kind of environment Venus had. But until missions began to go there that could pierce the veil of that very dense atmosphere, we had no idea what its surface really looked like. And it was only with the development of radar imaging that was capable of piercing the very, very dense clouds that we got a sense of what the topography of the planet looks like and what kind of geological features are down there. And to date, all missions that had been sent to the planet had been orbiters and flybys, with the exception of a handful of landers that were sent down by the Soviet space program. These were known as the Venera missions, which is Russian for Venus. Venera 9 and 10, as well as the later 13 and 14 of the dozens of missions that the Soviets sent towards Venus, these were the only ones that managed to deploy a lander into the atmosphere, and they only managed to survive for one or two hours from deployment to landing. Nevertheless, the images that they sent back 
were very fascinating. They showed a landscape that was both alien, yet somewhat familiar. It was cracked and rocky. The skies were yellow, and there was no sense whatsoever that life could exist in any form on the surface. But there was also evidence that water may have flowed on Venus's surface in the past. So there really hasn't been much in the way of proposals or mission plans for establishing a human presence on Venus. We know for a fact that living on the surface is beyond our means, and yet the hostile and incredibly dense nature of Venus's atmosphere has actually presented a solution which has been explored since the early 1970s at least. And it was at this time that Soviet engineers and scientists first proposed the concept of creating floating settlements in the clouds above Venus that these settlements would rely on balloons or aerostats because in Venus's atmosphere, the normal breathable mixture of air would be a lifting gas and it would be able to hold a settlement aloft and the dense, dense clouds, there'd be buoyancy. And by 2003, NASA conducted a study. They examined all the literature and this was overseen by Jeffrey Landis, like many, many concept studies. And upon review, Landis and his colleagues, they stated that although the surface of Venus is an extremely hostile environment, at about 50 kilometers above the surface, the atmosphere of Venus is the most Earth-like environment, other than Earth itself, in the solar system. It is proposed here that in the near term, human exploration of Venus could take place from aerostat vehicles in the atmosphere, and that in the long term, permanent settlements could be made in the form of cities designed to float so basically, cloud cities would be the way to establish a human foothold on the planet. At that altitude, the air is warm, there's very little in the way of sulfuric acid precipitation, and it's not breathable, but if you're establishing settlements whose flotation is based in part on it containing an Earth atmosphere, then it's really not a problem. They'd have to be sealed, and they'd have to be very resistant to any acid corrosion, so if you compare Mars and Venus, all the mission proposals and architectures and plans for future habitats and settlements, Mars has inspired a diverse array of plans with everything from small surface habitats to building underground and stable lava tubes to creating entire cities on the surface, varying in terms of their structure and what your building materials are, leveraging regolith and ice to provide protection against the elements and radiation. So, yeah, Martian habitats, Martian plans, they vary depending upon location and geography and building materials and all kinds of considerations. Whereas with Venus, really only one set of proposals has been made, and they're all based around the idea of aerostats and floating cities. So really only, only one true concept has been proposed for Venus, but it's been reiterated many times. So Venus's hellish environment really does constrain the kind of settlement opportunities we would have there. And like Mars, there's also significant challenges in terms of just getting there. Even though Venus is closer to the Earth than Mars, overcoming our velocity relative to the Sun is the main challenge there. Ships launching from Earth headed towards the Sun, and any other planet between us and the Sun, so Venus or Mercury, it's rather challenging because you have to cancel out that sideways motion. If you're going to send a mission to Mars, it's a matter of 
doing a Holman transfer orbit, basically aiming for where a planet beyond Earth is going to be. According to NASA, it takes 55 times the amount of energy to break free of Earth orbit and head towards the Sun than it does to go to Mars. So we would have to overcome that. We would need better propulsion systems in order to be able to make regular trips to Venus. Being able to reach Venus would also be very essential during the early phases of building a settlement. We cannot leverage local resources in the way that we could on Mars, so materials would have to be imported and rescue operations would need to be available if, in fact, these efforts meet with disaster. Uh, luckily, getting off of Venus, the escape velocity of Venus from the upper cloud deck would actually be much easier than launching from Earth. Mars has the benefit of lower gravity, but Venus is comparable to Earth in terms of size and mass and also gravity, so the escape velocity from the surface is higher. But 50 kilometers from the surface, it's less, so escape pods could be built into these floating cities, which would launch to space and could then be retrieved by missions that are passing by periodically if, in fact, a settlement suffers some catastrophic failure. However, it's important to keep in mind that a settlement in Venus's atmosphere need only remain buoyant, and that requires only that it be lighter than the atmosphere itself. And considering that the atmosphere is incredibly dense, it's really not hard. All you need is regular air, and that would achieve 60% of the buoyancy that a helium balloon experiences in Earth's atmosphere. Also, it's not required that you heat the air, as you would in a hot air balloon. Hot air expands, it becomes lighter than the air around it, thus allowing a balloon to float. You wouldn't need to do that here. So if, in fact, the settlement begins to experience problems in the atmosphere, if it finds itself sinking a little bit too low, all they really need to do is heat the air in the balloon to rise higher, or simply pump more air into it. It would also be very handy to have helium on hand, so putting that into the aerostats balloons would actually allow it to become even more buoyant. And so in this respect, cities could be built to scale, much in the same way that buildings are added in Venice or other cities that are built onto the water. Instead of being anchored to bedrock, they have buoys down at their foundation which keep them floating in the water. They are connected, and because Venus rotates very, very slowly, there isn't a danger of Coriolis forces causing them to travel sideways at high velocities and collide and cause damage. They could actually form rafts in the upper atmosphere. And so this would allow for human beings to multiply their numbers over time. It is unlikely that a settlement on Venus would ever become highly populated, that there would be more than a few tens of thousands of inhabitants, whereas Mars could scale up settlements to the point where they can house millions. Long-term habitation on Venus would require that the atmosphere be converted into something far less hostile, and that gets us into the realm of terraforming, which again is a possibility with Venus. It has essentially everything that we need in order to create a terrestrial environment similar to Earth. In some ways, it's even more favorable than Mars, but that is a long story, so much like with Mars, we are going to save that for another episode and another segment. Bottom line is, 
Creating a human settlement on Venus means taking advantage of its dense atmosphere, settling above it, not within it, and also having a supply chain to Earth, because just about everything is going to depend upon imports from Earth for the first little while. Over time, a settlement could be built in Venus's clouds that rafts with others, that harnesses the carbon dioxide of the upper atmosphere and uses that to create super materials, which can be used to scale up the settlements. But they are also going to have to grow all of their own food or import it. They're going to have to bring in the vast, vast majority of machine parts. And they're going to have to create a life support system that is, even more than Mars, closed loop and waste-free and sustainable for the long term. So this can be done. But again, as I said before, the question simply is, how much are we willing to spend? How long are we willing to wait? What kind of commitment are we willing to make there? And with the advent of more advanced propulsion systems, the possibility of doing this becomes that much greater. And also with the development of closed-loop bioregenerative life support systems, it also becomes more feasible as soon as you have a life support system that can support a population based solely on what it's producing and with zero waste and where everything is recycled, so that any resupplies, any, anything you're importing into it is a bonus, that with a respectable travel time can allow you to settle just about anywhere in our solar system. And Venus has another advantage going forward there, which has to do with its gravity. Whereas the Moon has roughly 16% of Earth normal gravity, and Mars has just under 40%, the surface gravity on Venus is roughly 90% that of Earth's. It would feel as close to normal as you're going to get beyond Earth, without the addition of simulated gravity. So that long-term consideration really isn't much of a problem. It's not much of a hazard. There's not a whole lot of uncertainty there. Uh, but of course, radiation is still an issue because, like Mars, Venus has no magnetosphere. What's more, given its closer proximity to the Sun, Venus receives about twice as much solar radiation. Most of this is reflected from its atmosphere, bounced back into space, part of what makes Venus so very bright in the night sky. So for any settlements built into the top cloud layer, there's going to be a lot of incoming solar radiation and it's going to be reflected back. So the radiation environment will be higher than we're used to. Cosmic rays are likely to be less of a threat on Venus just because even though we're above the main cloud layer, the atmospheric density there is comparable to that of Earth. So there will be some protection there. But ultimately, the settlements there are going to need radiation protection. But the upside to all that solar radiation is that solar heating can be leveraged so that life support systems don't need to be expending a great deal of energy to keep us warm, and the settlements don't need to be heavily, heavily insulated against heat loss. So this raises the question, when exactly could we expect such settlements, if ever, to be established on Venus? And the answer to that is, is going to take longer than it would to establish a foothold on Mars. So, best guess, just my own humble opinion, is that any such settlement efforts will probably have to wait until the turn of the century. And as I said before, it would be heavily dependent upon next-generation propulsion systems becoming available and in regular use, 
and minimizing transit periods. Most of the energy involved in that propulsion is going to be used simply to break free of Earth's orbit and start heading towards the sun. But once that occurs, then a nuclear propulsion system could make the transit to Venus in a short amount of time. This would allow us to build, resupply, etc. And of course, the development of bioregenerative life support systems, which we can expect, say, quite sooner than that. And long term, again, as I mentioned, terraforming is really the only way Venus could be made into a major population center. But long-term, a thriving economy could be built around the export of carbon-based materials such as carbon nanotubes, graphene, carbine, and other supermaterials that scientists are likely to figure out in the near future. Chemical vapor deposition allows us to turn simple carbon atoms into all of these things, all these supermaterials and even diamonds. So... Along with access to abundant mineral wealth out there among the asteroids and Mars and the Moon, in addition to finding massive caches of rare earth metals, this could lead to a post-scarcity economy. Not only would precious metals be much, much cheaper because of a greatly increased supply, not only would we save billions and prevent the environmental and ecological impact of mining happening on Earth, but we would be able to flood the market with artificial diamonds that can be used in everything, from electronics to super-resistant transparent materials. In the future, windows could all be diamondoid. So the potential is there. The possibility is there. It is just that, realistically, it's going to have to wait on a lot of other things taking place. And if, in fact, humanity does begin to become interplanetary, establishing the necessary infrastructure in the cis-lunar system, so between the Earth and the Moon, then between the Earth and Mars, that could greatly facilitate missions to Venus that also leverage the local resources and transplant humans there. And long-term, that could even lead to the terraforming of Venus to make it a veritable ocean paradise that lives up to its original name. Like I said, more on that later. So, this has been our third installment in the Settling the Solar System series. We've now covered the Moon, Mars, and Venus. So, next time, bit of a toss-up, is that next time I hope to deal with the asteroid belt, followed by Mercury, and then the outer solar system. Because the potential there in all these directions is really quite immense. Not just for scientific exploration, not just for resource management and building a post-scarcity economy, but for the kind of things that it will enable. The kind of living, the strategies for living, and the kind of societies and lifestyles and social impacts that this could have. And it's something that has been explored extensively in science fiction, including by myself, because it's just so utterly fascinating. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. 
you can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.